Amen. Thank you, Joe and worship team. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. And today we well, we're not going to finish chapter 12 today. We're going to come back next week and look at those last couple of verses about God as a consuming fire and what that means and why we're so concerned about worshiping Him and why God is so concerned about us worshiping Him and worshiping Him rightly. We'll get to that next week. So Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 25. Let's stand and honor the reading of the word of the Lord. And let us hear now the word of the Lord. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. May he bind it to our hearts. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, the Apostle Paul asks, in the context of defending his ministry, who is sufficient for these things? And God, I confess before these Wonderful people for whom I am deeply thankful. And before you, who knows the thoughts and intentions of my heart. Well, that I am not sufficient for these things. And yet, what a privilege it is to preach your word this morning. God, I pray that you would use this poor, lisping, stammering tongue to preach your word. And that God, by your spirit, you'd send your word forth and it would not return void, but accomplish that which you send it forth to do. That, God, you would work your work of grace in those who do not know you, Lord, today. And for those of us who know you, you'd work in the lost, but in the found, you'd work sanctification in us, God. That this day you'd make us more like Jesus than we were yesterday. And, God, give us a passion for your glory. Give us a love for your word. Cause us to delight in obeying your word. For Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And, God, we know and are absolutely confident in your word. And that you will keep your promise, and indeed you are keeping your promise, that I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So God, be about that now in us and through us for your glory. Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. One of the great thrills of my life in the last 20 years was my visit, probably 12 years ago, to the Grand Canyon. If you ever been to the Grand Canyon, you know what I'm talking about. The Grand Canyon is a mile deep. The Grand Canyon is something only God could make. And here's what I love about the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is beautiful on one hand and extremely dangerous on the other hand. I'm not sure what it is we love about things that are on one hand very beautiful, but also extremely dangerous. Isn't that what we've learned about God in the past week as we looked at that picture from Sinai? The God, God is the embodiment of everything that's beautiful and everything that's holy and everything that's righteous, but he's also a God who is very dangerous. 
It must be handled with care. That's the Grand Canyon. At the Grand Canyon, there's not many fences. I'm scared of heights, so that terrified me. I stayed back. My friends have a funny picture of me. I'm like 12 feet from the edge, kind of going, that's nice. I'm not getting near there. I didn't get near there, except for a few overlooks. There are no fences and no rails. And every year, on average, about three people fall to their deaths. I think that's probably increased with the advent of this selfie. People are backing up, backing up, and then, <laughs> well, that last step was a Lulu, and you've heard of that. And on average, 12 people die there. You're not just from falling, but because they didn't, they didn't heed the warning signs that stand all over. They're planted in the ground all around the rims of the Grand Canyon. There's warnings against moving close to the edge, warning against falling rocks, warning with snakes and bears and people have been eaten by bears. They wander off the trails. They say don't wander off the trails. They wander off the trails. The forest rangers who were there will warn them don't wander off the trails. And they wander off the trails never to be seen again. They don't heed the warning signs. They're everywhere. Both spoken warnings but also those signs. I remember seeing them. I, and I heeded the warning signs and by God's grace... I'm here to preach to you today. Scripture is full of warnings. We've been looking at warnings all through the book of Hebrews. In fact, this is the fifth and final warning of the book of Hebrews, and I put them all up here. If you want to write all those down, the warning passages are found in Hebrews chapter 2, 1 to 4, in 3, 7 to over into chapter 4, 13, and then you skip down to uh, chapter 5, verse 11, and then to that incredible warning passage in chapter 6 verse 12 that's one warning that we debate within the church and dispute and we took a lot of time to look at that and then there's one in chapter 10 26 to 31 we looked at just a few weeks ago and then we arrive at this one today and this is like the Grand Canyon it's warning us it's warning this original audience don't go back to where you came from don't misstep because God, our God, is a consuming fire. And we'll look at that again more next week. But don't misstep. It's just a warning. This, this original audience, as we've been saying all along, remember they're, they're being tempted to go return to Judaism because the Christian life is hard. Clay and Jacob and I were talking about this on the front porch. How hard the Christian life is. How, I mean, I would never have written the Bible this way. The gospel, following after Jesus, Jesus said what? We've been saying this all along. Narrow is the path that leads to life. Hard is the way. And few of the be that find it. And the Christian life is not zippity-doo-dah, zippity-ay. Oh, my, what a wonderful day. That is not the Christian life. That is one message you hear preached from pulpits all around this country, and that is a false gospel. That, my friend, is heresy. That's not by the Bible. Just embrace Jesus and your life will get better. No, embrace Jesus and your life on this earth, it may seem worse. In fact, you've heard me say this before, so I said again, your problem just, may just be beginning when you become a Christian. Ministry, it's doubly bad. You guys, a seminarian here, you think, I'll go out, I'll be the next John Piper. You're not going to be the next John Piper. God had to hurt him before he made him John Piper, and he's going to hurt you too because you're not frightened enough, just as we said last week. So we come to this final warning passage, and it's eye-opening because it tells us of a world that will be shaken, an earth that will be shaken, and it tells us of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We'll look at that language here in a moment, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And of course, we know there's a whole lot of shaking going on in our world today, in our culture, 
And we have to ask ourselves, is there a place we can plant our feet where the earth beneath us will not move? And I'm here to tell you this morning what the author of Hebrews is telling us, that yes, indeed there is a place to plant your feet that will not move. And that place to plant your feet is at the foot of the old rugged cross, just as we've sung about that fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners, sinners, that's us, plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stain. Don't you love that line? That don't get you excited. You can't be excited. And as a result, we've come to a king that cannot be shaken. Now, this is a continuation of last week's text contrasting the Mount Sinai and the Mount Zion. Remember the two, the, two law, the two mountains, the mountain of law and the mountain of grace, as I called them, to kind of summarize them. And on the basis of what we've seen, the writer of Hebrews intends for us to make some reflections about our lives and about our eternity. And I want you to think about that this morning. Where is your hope? We can't live five minutes without hope, can we? There's no hope. If we're hoping, as Paul said, this life, we're all people most to be pitied. If there is no hope, we're wasting our time here this morning. But there's hope in this kingdom that cannot be shaken. And precisely because it cannot be shaken, that is the source of our hope. What is the source of your hope? What is the ground of your hope today? So we come to this fifth and final exhortation against the danger of apostasy. Will you go from here and will you hear the preaching of the gospel week after week after week after week and the teaching of the word of God and go away? Will you look to plant your feet somewhere else? Will you be a part of the kingdom that will be shaken? That's all you have to ask yourself this morning. What are you building your foundation, your life on? That's another way Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. He ends the Sermon on the Mount with that way, the two foundations. We could say it that way. Lots of ways we could say it. And so he says here, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, okay? And that's the warning. See to it. He's speaking, and he's speaking right now, not through me, but through his word. As long as, insofar as I'm faithful to the word, God is speaking. When I'm being Jeff, and uh, you can take that, you can go to sleep, you know, or dream about, I don't know, the chicken, this, or Mother's Day lunch, or whatever it is. But do not refuse him who's speaking. It's the word of God. Do not refuse the word of God. To come here and sit here and ignore this or daydream about something else, it's going to have an effect on you. It will harden your hearts. So this warning is very, very serious. Well, you go to church because it's what we do. Don't, don't trifle with the things of God. Don't play with the things of God. Like I said last week, you're not frightened enough. We don't understand God. We'll look at His holiness again next week and when He speaks about this consuming fire and what that means. So I want to give three reasons from the text. I see three reasons this morning why we must not refuse Him who's speaking. The first one's this. It's because... We must not refuse him who is speaking because the consequences of rejecting the gospel are eternal death. Verse 25. See to it, you don't refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape, when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. See to it. See to it. See to it. Kids, how often do your parents say, see to it that you clean your room? You hear that a lot. We hear that a lot in Hebrews. That's a very common phrase throughout Hebrews. He keeps saying, see to it. And when you say, see to it, you better listen, right? You better listen to all of it, right? Because it's God speaking. That's why the Word of God is so precious to us. It's the very Word of God, the inspired and errant, authoritative. What I said earlier about to bracket the Word of God, that's why I'm very intentional about that. That's not just kind of a, you know, a thing we do that's part of the liturgy and this is kind of a formality. No, 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 no. This is the Word of the Lord. 
And it's very important because we don't want to refuse him who is speaking. And so he's telling us to be watchful. Watchfulness, that's a spiritual discipline. I think we've largely lost. The Puritans loved it. There's a book called Watchfulness. Find it, not right now, but later. Uh, a friend of mine, very good, but we'll talk about that later. But being watchful, watching for a real and grave and present danger. He's concerned throughout that among the number of professing believers in this community, some might deny the faith under the threat of persecution. So here we have an argument from the lesser to the greater. He says, there's consequences, there were consequences from Old Testament Israel, the ethnic people of God, for rejecting the law of God, for rejecting Mount Sinai. And you know the, the consequences. They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, right? 40 years of desert wandering and thousands of deaths. They died for disobeying the word of God lots of different times. Thousands just killed because they weren't fearful enough. And I don't mean a slothful kind of fear of a slave, but the respect and the adulation and the adoration of a son or a daughter. That's what I'm talking about here. But, oh, there is a part of God to fear, his destruction, his, the consuming fire that he is that we'll, we'll get to in due course. So we see the consequences of rejecting the law of God. It was terrible. They were cut off. They wandered for 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness, and many of them were killed. They didn't survive, and that generation didn't go in to see the promised land either. He said, that was bad, but, oh, it's far worse, beloved, if you, respect, if you reject him who is speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ. The consequences of rejecting the gospel are far worse. That's the lesser to greater. The lesser, the law of God, they rejected that, but, oh, it's far greater, the consequences of rejecting Jesus Christ. Because God is a consuming fire. If the Israelites did not escape the most severe punishment when they hardened their hearts toward God's revelation from Mount Sinai, His giving of the law, they disobeyed the law, they didn't believe God, they didn't trust God, they didn't trust His word then how much greater is the punishment for those who do not heed the gospel? When it, which comes to us from the heavenly Mount Zion, it's the message from that other mountain, the mountain of grace. How much worse will it be for you on that day of judgment? He's going to speak of if you have rejected Christ as king. Because let's face it, someone will be king over the throne of your heart. And really it comes down to this. It'll be the you, it'll be him. It'll be Christ, he'll be the king, or it'll be you. And you'll fashion a God in your own image and you'll worship yourself and your, your world will shrink down this little emaciated little world of money and success and, and, and you know, sexuality and uh, identity and all these things, politics, whatever. Or you'll worship your own you know, racial qualities or something like that. It'll come down to that. When you worship yourself, you will be king. Who will be king? Will it be God or will it be you? We see it in our world, don't we? We see what the world is after. We see, what, what are they after in identity politics? Well, they're after being king of this world because they have no other world to be king over. Make no mistake, they want to be king. King of their own kingdom. A kingdom that looks a lot like me. A God that looks a lot like me because it is me. He said, and, that, and, and that's what it comes down to. He says, for since, this harkens back to chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, that's the, the law of God, right? It was reliable. It was given by mediation of angels. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. They got what their sins deserved instantaneously in the Old Testament. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And if you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear that. 
Friend, if you're here this morning and you, you're going to make it right with God someday, you get older maybe, or you, you, know, you get retired, or whatever it is, you're going you're to make it right with God, I'll start living for Him then. Don't neglect so great a salvation. God owes you nothing. He may never deal with you again. This may be it this morning. This could be the last time that you hear the gospel. It could be. I don't know. I don't know the future. I certainly don't know your future. I'll never presume to say that. I don't know my future. But I don't know who holds the future. For me, do you? Do not, do not neglect him. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's, the, that's it. My friend George Guthrie wrote this. He said, for those who reject God's word, there exists no escape from God's judgment. At the end, a person either resides as a citizen of God's unshakable kingdom or perishes with the rest of the universe. Indeed. Now, there's a mistaken notion. I want to disabuse you all right here and now. I probably don't need to do this, but I've got to say this because I don't know where all of you are. There's this mistaken notion that there's the Old Testament God, and he's a God with an attitude problem. He likes to talk about fire, hellfire, and brimstone. He loves to condemn people. He loves to kill people. He loves to torture people by making them wander in the wilderness. And then you've got the New Testament God, and that's Jesus. And he looks kind of like John Lennon. And he's, he's a wisecracking 60s radical, you know. He's got the long flowing locks, and he just loves everybody. He's a God of love, and that's my God. You're not frightened enough. Away with that Jesus. That is a false God. And that's a notion I hear with some frequency. The God of the Old Testament, yeah, he killed. He said kill them all going into Canaan and let God sort them out. I don't like that God, but I like Jesus. Jesus is still all right with me. You know, it's a song and well, we sing it. Not here, out there. Scripture knows of no such God. People compare Moses to Jesus. They think, Jesus, he's just a nice chap. I just love to have Jesus over, you know, sort of have a, even a small group. Nice chap. Doesn't say mean things like Moses did. And he tolerates our sin, our rebellious unbelief. He tolerates that because he's just tolerant. That's a false religion, a popular religion. Even in some evangelical churches, that's the way Jesus is spoken of. The Old Testament God, well, let's leave him and his attitude problems, you know, let's not talk about that. Well, the writer of Hebrews, he wants to talk about that because we need to talk about that because we're not frightened enough. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8, he says, Jesus will return. This is Jesus, okay? The context, he will return from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who is very God of very God, who is one with the Father. That Jesus. What's at stake this morning? And every morning we come here to preach God's word? That. That's at stake. Eternity is at stake every time we meet here. Do you know that? Do you feel that? Boy, I sure do. That's why I have to sleep for like four hours on Sunday afternoon. Because heaven and hell hang in the balance, and I feel like I'm on the pivot point. <laughs> but I want you to feel that. I want you to feel that. He will come back, and that's what, that's what the writer's getting at here. That's Paul's sort of exposition and enlarging on this, enlarging on this. 
I mean, the gospel presents the highest obligation to obedience, bringing a greater punishment for disobedience than even Moses' law. People say, well, that's the Old Testament. New Testament is all about grace. Old Testament all about law. We need, to, we need to obey in the New Testament. The God, the, the God who's angry, the God who had attitude problems, had all these laws, and we don't have to obey those because we're under grace. No, no, no. Gospel obedience. Gospel obedience. The Bible still calls for us to obey Christ, obey the gospel, because it will bring a greater punishment than even disobedience to Moses' law if we disobey God's earthly revelation. The penalty is considerably greater. Because it's what he says here. It's eternal condemnation. Suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So yeah, you Southern Baptists seem to love that. You know, you talk about that a lot. I know that's not popular. And I know that's not encouraging probably to you. And it shouldn't be because people are going there daily. Hell is enlarging its mouth daily. And we don't talk enough about it. Again, we don't need to obsess over it. And I certainly come to you this morning with reverence. We touch this, this mountain with reverence and fear because it's true. With our hearts broken for those around us who do not know Jesus. Jesus is a God of wrath, yes, but also a God of love, of course. He's loved you and gave himself up for you and did me. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's the good news, isn't it? There's good news in this. The kingdom cannot be shaken. We're getting there. If the law of God condemns you when you don't need to listen to it, think about what the condemnation or rejection of the gospel is. A failing to hear and to heed God's word. Brings me to the second reason we must not refuse him who is speaking. Because the kingdom of man and its treasure are fleeting. I'm glad to know this world is not all there is, aren't you? Because if this world's all there is, it's a cruel joke. I see this in verses 26 to the first part of verse 28. He says, God will one day shake the heavens in verse 26. On the last day, he will shake this earth in judgment. God's voice shook Sinai. Don't miss the picture here. We saw it last week. God's voice in Exodus 19 and 20. When he met with Moses, he met with the people of God. He shook the, he shook the ground. That's the picture. And one day he's going to shake the earth to its very core, down to its foundations. He's going to remove it. It might be today. This voice shook Sinai. It will shake the earth again. Psalm 68.8 says, The earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai. That's the picture of Sinai. That first mountain we looked at last week. A shaking of the earth at Sinai pointed forward to a greater shaking that will come yet in the future. At the end of time, a shaking that will impact everything. Verse 26, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And then he gives an explanation for this in verse 27. The phrase, yet once more, I love it when he exegetes or exegesis. That helps the preacher. <laughs> He's a good preacher. He's skilled. He says, yet, what I mean by this, I mean this. The phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of Things that are shaken, what are those? That is the things that have been made. That's the creation. That is absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. Be shaken to the core and removed. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What's going to remain? It's going to be what you've laid up in heaven. It's going to be the kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's it. That's all that's going to be left. What you're investing in that's this world only, it will burn up on the last day. That's why we want to invest in, uh, we have treasure in heaven, as Jesus said, or moth and rust do not destroy, thieves do not break in and steal. Right? It's hard. 
isn't it? But either this is the Word of God or it's not. And we either take it seriously, we listen to Him who's speaking from heaven, or we do not. This, 2 Thessalonians, this, it came from heaven, right? I didn't make that up. John Calvin didn't write it. Martin Luther didn't write it. Billy Graham didn't write it. John Owen, whoever. No, God wrote it. It's, it's the Word of God. We reject Him to our own peril. Reject the Word of God to our own peril. He's quoting Haggai 2, 6, and 7 here about the things that have been made. And here we're reading what I want to call a prophetic history lesson. A prophetic history lesson. A reminder that one day this present created realm will be shaken by God, leaving only eternal things. It's the same point John makes in 1 John 2, 17. He says, the world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's it. The world's passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The will of God, that's what it's about. All the things that people live for, all we strive toward that is of this world will ultimately come to nothing. Nothing. Peter wrote of the judgment that will come upon the world after Christ returns in 2 Peter 3.10. He said, the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And yet I'm afraid in an age of iPhones and, and almost just ubiquitous technology, we, we don't have to read books anymore, just ask Siri, <laughs> right? Oh, Siri came on the last time I said that, making my point. But I'm afraid we, that just doesn't resonate with us. It just doesn't wash on down the stream with us. Even, even those of us who are sitting in church every week, that this is the Word of God and it's, it's, it's true. The Word of God and the words of God, they're all true because He's spoken. Will we, will we ignore Him? I mean, this is one point at which the Christian view is sharply at odds with that of the world. It's hard to underestimate the importance of this point. I mean, all through our lives we've been taught that things of substance, things we can see, things that are lasting and stable are worldly things. Ideas and beliefs and spiritual commitments, spiritual commitments, those are things they come and go, we are told. But what lasts is cold, hard cash. That bank account, that number, that lasts. That's what we're told. Giant buildings of brick and steel, that's what we're told. I guess 9-11 told us a different tale, didn't it? Achievements of nations and commerce and arts and political power, those things will last so the world tells us. They say, believe whatever you like of spiritual things since they're of secondary importance. It's just a leap in the dark and that makes you feel better about yourself. If Jesus makes you feel better, then that's fine with me. Actually, they're not fine with that anymore. Actually. But Christ will have none of it. The author of Scripture will have none of it. You say, don't let that religion interfere with the tangible things of this world and you'll be just fine. We'll like you. We'll be your friend. So under this view, the practical person would abandon Christianity in the face of opposition and ridicule and persecution because it is ephemeral and pointless. And that's what this, exactly the temptation that was facing this original audience. It's ephemeral or pass away what you need is power. Earthly power. But this world is ultimately not what matters. 
God shook the earth when he descended Mount Sinai. He's going to shake the heavens. The earth, he tells us here, verse 26 and 27, all things, when he comes again in glory and power. That day will come when everything in this world will pass away, as Peter said. And those who have their hopes and their dreams and their security and their salvation rooted in this world will find themselves brought to utter and complete ruin. Will it be us? Will it be us? I'm convinced you can go to seminary and come to utter ruin. I'm convinced you can make an idol out of theology because you missed the God of the theology, right? If that didn't change our lives, then I wonder if we even know what theology is at all. Those of us who spend a lot of our time dealing with these things, we can get so familiar with it that it doesn't affect us. It becomes just another thing that we can pin on our, put beside our names to tell people, hey, I've, I've done this and this and I've accomplished this. God, as you're speaking of the last day, though, right here, the last day, when you remove all things that are made, but the spiritual kingdom will endure forever. The things we can see, they're gone. What you can see here, here, right here, it's gone. It is going, going, gone, like a home run, out of here. But that kingdom you cannot see, it is more real than the kingdom you can see. You see the point here? That's what he's saying. And it will crush the pretenses of man to the dust. What is your posture toward it? What is your your posture toward it? A good illustration of this is the Roman Empire. They called it the eternal city. It lasted nearly a thousand years. And where is it today? Where is Rome today? I don't mean the Roman church. I mean the empire. Where is it today? It's the eternal city, right? It was the Reich that would stand. Of course, Hitler came and his Reich lasted 12 years. How pathetic. And yet, how pathetic are all of our Reichs? All of our kingdoms, right, compared to that kingdom that cannot be shaken. The Roman Empire, it's long gone. It was, it was overthrown by a bunch of vandals. You think of vandals, you think of brilliant people who are, you know, very well-heeled and brilliant in every way. Oh, you think of people that put the, you know, burn buildings and put graffiti out on the expressway, don't you? Vandalism. That's who defeated the Romans. The hillbillies won. They defeated the Romans, right? They did. Okay? They defeated them. That's all it took. But we know it was God, don't we? Because he's sovereign. And the New Testament church to whom Hebrews was written existed in the Roman Empire, was being persecuted by it. These arrogant rulers, they cried, Rome will last forever. It's the eternal city. And it, it's gone. Relegated to the dustbin of history. Assyria, old Egypt, where are they now? Greece, gone. America, will she stand forever? No. Are we putting our stock in this in this nation? I love our nation. I'm thankful for our nation. But is this ultimate? Is this the ultimate kingdom? No. And sometimes we live as if it is, right? As if this is the kingdom. This is all there is. The gospel isn't even true. And again, I love our, our, our country. If Rome fell and Jesus tarries, We shall go the same way. I have no doubt. Because we live in a kingdom that can be shaken and is shaking. A lot of shaking going on, right? A whole lot of shaking going on with that good old song. School shootings. They don't even make the front page anymore. That's the newspapers for you who don't know what a newspaper is. They used to be on the front page, right? I used to work for a newspaper. School shootings are so commonplace, they're like on page three. In America, 
the land of the free and the home of the brave. Marriage and gender, they're being redefined before our eyes. Whatever you identify, you identify as this, well, that's you. You're that. And don't question that, by the way. The babies, 65 million babies murdered in their wombs in the name of choice and health care. Talk about a holocaust. That's a holocaust. Beloved, we're living in a holocaust. There was, you know, there was Germany in 1933 to 1946, 1945. We're living in a holocaust. 65 million babies since Roe versus Wade decision, 1973. 3,500 every single day. By the time we get out of here, 500 babies will have been destroyed. There's a whole lot of shaking going on. It's easy to be depressed, isn't it? Hundreds are killed each year. Cities wiped out by hurricanes and tornadoes. And, of course, there's the pandemic. Almost 600,000 people dead. And now India's, you know, boy, India's a mess. Looting and burning and rioting of our cities in the United States in the name of so-called justice. Burning our own cities down. How foolish is that? Kingdom is shaking, beloved. Do you feel it? It's shaking. The ground beneath us is shaking. Is there a place where we can plant our feet that will not be shaken? Yes. Yes. It's Christ. It's here. It's the Christ we're going to see when we take the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes. It's the Christ which Scripture proclaims from Genesis 1, the end of Revelation. It's Christ. It's Christ. Where are you planting your feet? We have pastors being arrested and we're having church in Canada for... Being a danger to public health. <laughs> We're not frightened enough, are we? Defund the police. The cities that need the police the most. Shaking, shaking. You feel it? These last couple of years, I feel it probably more than ever. Maybe it's aging, but I don't think it is. Shaking. The kingdom of man is shaking. A few minutes, look at Romans 8. We're going to meditate on a little bit of Romans 8. We'll look very briefly at what, 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 what Paul calls it, groaning. It's groaning, and he calls us to groan with it. And the voice we need most to hear in this hour and in every hour in history is that of Jesus himself. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but what? My words will not pass away. Heaven and earth pass away. My words will never pass away. You want to build your life on something that will not move, you build on this book, and you will flat build on something that does not move and will not move and cannot move. So Christians' priorities are opposite from those of the world. Far from putting spiritual things second, it is our allegiance to Christ that we must place first or we will be shaken with those things that are shaken when the ultimate shaking and the final shaking comes. Worldly, commit, worldly commitments and agendas, particularly as they involve sin, get in the way of our obedience to Christ. We must be prepared to let the world go. Remember he said, Early in chapter 12, let's just lay aside every encumbrance that keeps you from running the race well, every sin that's clings so closely. He's just enlarging on that. Lay it, lay it aside. We've got to lay it aside so we can walk with Christ and keep our feet firmly planted in Him, in this kingdom that will last. This means our earthly treasures, which we spend so much time accumulating and serving and protecting with insurance and all else, and I do it too, and you do it, almost with servile care, they ultimately don't matter. So, you know, did you, get the, did you get the insurance for your iPhone? <laughs> Probably did. 
We care about that, don't we? And it's okay to care about that, but not ultimately, right? Something so crass. Earthly treasures, they ultimately don't matter. Francis Schaeffer illustrated this well, and I don't like to read to you, so it's probably the professor coming out of me, but I want to read this. It's just a couple paragraphs. So listen to this. This is powerful. Francis Schaeffer, one of my heroes, and one of the greater Christian apologists from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, he wrote this in a sermon. It's called No Little People. He said, have you ever walked through a city dump? I'm going to walk out from behind here. Have you ever walked through a city dump? You should. Find a landfill and go sit in front of it and do this. When I was growing up in Philadelphia, he said, I would hike every Saturday to get to the clean air of the country. I used to have save a couple of miles by tramping through the city dump. I've never forgotten this. It was a place of junk, a fire of stench. It sounds like the... One of the mountains, doesn't it? <laughs> it has helped me tremendously to think back at that place because even as a boy, I realized that I saw there almost everything people spend their money for. That was where their investment ended, and it's where your investment will end too, brothers and sisters. Some things may be handed down in a family for 500 years, though certainly most things you buy today will not, but someday they will be gone. Here's a topic for Christian artists or poets. Meditation on the ash heap, on the junkyard, the landfill, or ode on a city dump. Have you ever had to break up a rich man's house after he has died? It is a sad thing to go through the home of someone who has spent his entire life laying up riches in this world. I recall one instance where a non-Christian man had owned a large, gorgeous dining room table. He had it built into his house and had been very proud of it. When it came time to dispense his household goods, there was no way to take the table apart without spoiling it. So they simply took an axe and they chopped it up and threw the pieces on a fire. The admonition of Jesus had come to pass. The man had proved himself a fool. His possessions were either destroyed or carted away. How pathetic. In our culture, nothing exhibits such folly more than our automobiles. Go to a showroom and see the pride with which a man drives out his new car. Then think of an automobile graveyard, rusting, stripped, junk car, abandoned on a city street. They are shells, screaming out tremendous sermons against all practical materialism. You're fools! You're fools! You're fools! And Christians, as well as any others, can be such fools with their wealth. That is powerful, isn't it? Go to the junkyard and see where your things will wind up. And go to the graveyard and see where you'll wind up. That's it. And you're going to need a kingdom that can't be shaken. Those things, your cars, I just got a new car. Man, I love that car. It's faster than my other car, I'm finding out. Got to be careful with that. But I know in five years, I'll probably hate the car. It's already starting. There's some things about it I don't like already. It's been like three weeks. Very fickle. Why would we want to give ourselves to things that will perish? Christians may and in many cases should be involved in worldly endeavors. We're not saying that. But wise believers will do so in a manner pleasing to God. So two reasons. Third reason, not to refuse him of speaking. This is very short. And we've been saying this all along. Because the kingdom of God cannot be shaken. Verse 28, you're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're taught to pray the Lord's Prayer. What? Your kingdom. What? Come on, stay with me here. <laughs> Your kingdom. Just a couple more, a few more minutes here. We'll do the Lord's Supper. Your kingdom come. 
Why? Because that's the ultimate kingdom. That's the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Your kingdom come. We're supposed to pray that God will bring in his kingdom, right? And I hope you're praying that. I pray that every day. Boy, I want it to come in because my life is too much in the junkyard. That is what history is about. And for wise, we'll value our participation in Christ's spiritual kingdom far above any worldly calling. This is why back in 12, 1 or 2, he said, lay aside everything. Lay it all aside. Lay in your earthly things. In other words, don't let your heart. You may have them. Don't let them have you. You may have money, but it must never have you. It's fine to have money. No, no, it's sin. But the question is, does it have you? Does your things, do your things have you, or do you just have them? Things are great. I love my iPhone. I'm not sure I could get anywhere without it now, and so I'll get lost, especially, you know, but it better not have me. Something so crass and ludicrous, and yet it has us, doesn't it? Our hearts are idol factories, as Calvin put it. But we've come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. All those things are going to be shaken. They'll fall to the ground in the end. But we, by faith, are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken because it is of God. Note the wording here. The writer says it cannot be shaken. He didn't say it will not be shaken. Of course, it will not be shaken, but it cannot be shaken. It will not be shaken because it cannot be shaken. You see the difference? These are the word of God, and these are the words of God. It cannot be shaken. Nothing here is going to affect that world ultimately to a detrimental, in a detrimental sense. Nothing. We can affect it in a good way. We can lay up our treasure in heaven, right? But nothing here. The pretenses of man will not affect things there. It's solid ground. The kingdom of man looks like solid ground, but it's a mirage. It isn't. The kingdom of God, which is invisible to us now, this is solid ground. Plant your feet there. Plant your feet in Jesus. That's the entryway. That's the, the means by which the ground of our, our entry into the kingdom is Christ and faith in him and his death and resurrection, his substitutionary atoning death for us is solid ground. And there's no earthquake, no hurricane, no tsunami, no pandemic, no economic downturn, no war, no rumor of war can touch it. Nothing. It cannot be shaken. Nothing can touch it. And I wonder how we respond. He says so here. With reverence and all. Thanksgiving. Are you thankful for your salvation? Are you thankful for the kingdom that cannot be shaken today? Are you here to worship God with reverence and all? Are you frightened enough? That's what our response should be. Worship, reverence and all. And thankfulness. Because our God is a consuming fire. We're going to deal with those two verses next week. I'm going to leave it right there. So don't be tempted to talk more about that. And then come back next week. We will. So we prepare our hearts to take this supper now. The Lord's Supper. Think about the consequences of refusing the God who is speaking. Both God and his word, they're synonymous. They're synonyms. They go together. One, they're not inseparable from one another. We don't worship a book. We worship the God of the book, but he wrote the book, and it's his word. And they're eternal. Paul said, I count everything as loss, everything for the sake of knowing Christ. Do you count everything loss? Do you count everything lost for the sake of Christ? Are you planting your feet in that eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken? Or are you being shaken with the world? If you're a Christian, you shouldn't be too shaken by this world. Well, we'll be shaken. and you get discouraged, you shouldn't be too shaken by this world. One of my friends, Jeremy Pierre, many of you know him, his house caught fire and burned a couple a year or so ago. And I remember his attitude was just, he got his family out. And in talking to him, he just, it didn't bother him. He'd be embarrassed for me to say that probably. That's, that's the Christian. That's it. We let goods and kindred go. Luther said this, more to life also, let it go. 
And it, it frees us, that it liberates us if we lay up treasure and have it liberates us to, to give of our time, of our, our finances, of, of everything. Because Jesus demands our lives, our souls, our all. When you come to Christ, you come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The city of God, to go back to Augustine we talked about weeks ago, cannot be touched by the city of man. Earthly leaders cannot shake the kingdom of God. Democrats can't shake it. You worry about the Democrats? The Democrats can't shake it. All their lawmaking can't shake it. You worry about the Republicans? They can't shake it. All their lawmaking can't shake it. They can't shake it. The president, he can't shake it. The former presidents, they can't shake it. They didn't shake it. It's still there, right? We had an election. The kingdom of God is still there, right? And there will be another election and it will still be there. If Jesus doesn't tarry, I can't touch it. Elections lost can't shake it. Elections won can't shake it. Cancer can't shake it. Some of you have walked that, that dark road. Broken relationships can't shake it. Global pandemics, <laughs> not on your life. I can't shake it. We've been through this and, and the kingdom is still there. And we're evidence of that, that we're preaching this word today, gathered together. Evidence is still here. Doing the same thing this time this year, we were doing this time last year. And Lord willing, we'll be doing the same thing next year, this time we're doing this year, a year from today. That's my plan. I hope it's your plan. Mass mandates, lockdowns, they can't shake it. You may like it or hate it or think it's wonderful, but none of that can shake the kingdom of God. And yet we're so easily distracted, aren't we, by these things. So we're going to leave our church because they made us wear masks or they didn't make us wear masks or some triviality like that. Let's wake up. That is, that is just the most crass American individualistic gospel I can imagine. You know why? And I'm not surprised because we're rebels because that's in my heart too. I've said the same thing. I'm talking to me. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to me. But I've come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What's wrong? Will you refuse it? Will you fail to hear him who warns from heaven that destruction is coming to this world? It's coming. Are you going to refuse it? Today you hear it. You hear it from the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. That's why I say it. This is the word of the Lord. Will you hear it and heed it? Or will you yawn and ignore it and just worry about lunch? We're going to get to lunch. We're going to have a great supper first. The earth and everything in it won't be destroyed, and the only, only those who have taken refuge in the ark of Jesus Christ will be safe. The created order is shaking. But we're going to see here in a moment as we take the supper for all those in Christ that will one day be set right. I want to pray, and then we're going to go right into the Lord's Supper. Let's pray.